few years ago, I was reading uh, a book by Thomas Merton called New Seeds of Contemplation. And I stumbled across a statement that Merton made on page 98 of my copy. It said, most people never become great saints for the same reason they don't become great poets. They never get around to being the kind of person that is called for by the times in which they live. I underlined it, wrote it to the side. Most people never become great saints for the same reason they never become great poets. They never get around to being the kind of person that is called for by the times in which they live. I wrote a note to myself. The best person you can be is the person called for by your times. It was a new thought to me because I knew that people were called according to their passions. I knew they were called according to their gifts. I knew sometimes they were called according to God. I had not considered that they were sometimes called by their times. In fact, if I understood it right, he said, you could not be great unless you were called in part by your times. Most of us never get that far. Most of us wake up in the morning and do the thing that's right in front of us, whether it's a meeting, an appointment, a test, something on our schedule. So we wake up and we live our lives by the day, not by the era. Historian Arnold Toynbee said, we're like the man who presses his nose up against a mirror trying to see his whole body. Thinking that the closer he gets, the more he will see. In fact, the opposite is true. He is now so close that he can't really see hardly anything except his nose. We are this way. We wake up every morning with more information, more details, more knowledge than any generation has had before us. There is more information every day in the New York Times than there was in 100 years combined from 1800 to 1900. Every day in one newspaper. And yet with all that information, we are not able to put things together. We can't understand how things work. We don't know the meaning of things. We just know the details of things. We're like the person with his nose pressed up against the mirror looking at the particulars, but we have never backed up or seldom do and look at the whole picture. The more I thought about Merton's quote, the more I realized he might be right. Most of the people that you and I value in history, the big names, whether in religion the Luthers, the Wesleys, or whether in government, the Lincolns, or the Martin Luther King Juniors, were people that were not just good at what they do. They were people who answered the times. They were not just time conscious. They were aware of the moment in history in which they lived, and they did something with their lives that answered the call at that time in history. Do you see what I mean? This was a new thought for me. I was not used to going there. So for the next few weeks, I would like us to pay attention to the times and the kind of people that we are called to be. Three questions have sort of guided my thoughts over the next few weeks. One of them, obviously, is what time is it? 
Another one is what kind of people are called for by these times. And another, what specifically are these people doing in these times to serve the present age? Habakkuk was one such character. You almost never read Habakkuk because he's a prophet. Nobody reads the prophets because prophets are always cursing or crying about something. I read them every October when the lion season is over. (laughs) Misery loves company, so I just pick up the prophets and read them. Habakkuk is certainly in that category. So far as we know, he is no outstanding talent. He's an ordinary person. He's not exceptionally smart. He has no position to power. Most prophets did. So far as we know, he had none. So far as we know, he could see nothing in front of him that no other prophet could see. So why does he have a book in the Bible? He has a book in the Bible because of an argument that he had with God. And out of that argument came a word. And in that word, the prophet discovered his voice, and it was a word for the times. I think it's a word for ours. Habakkuk was familiar with the sermons of Isaiah about a hundred years before him. He knew very well the writings or the teachings of Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of his. He had heard all about how bad it was in Jerusalem and what was happening to the moral fiber of his own people. And when Habakkuk looked abroad at other countries, what he saw was the rise of something like an Islamic state. It wasn't an Islamic state, didn't exist back then, but it was something like that. This was an army that was moving quickly and tearing up countries. They had unprecedented acts of terror. What they did was public to everyone around them. All of the nations were terrified. And when Habakkuk looked at the steady advance of this empire, he saw no one, not even God himself, doing anything to stop them. He saw people being migrated or deported out of their homeland, refugees, if you will, by the thousands, hundreds of thousands, moved to other countries that were not their own. In other words, he saw the same thing you see if you watch the news today. He saw something like an ISIS that was steadily advancing and no government, not ours, or even God himself appears to stop them. And he saw refugees by the hundreds of thousands being dislocated. CNN wrote just this week that there may be as many as 60 million refugees somewhere in the world. And when he looked at his own country, it was even worse. He realized that the people that were supposed to make the world right were themselves full of corruption. He saw injustice and oppression in his own people. He saw rich people who were greedy and duplicitous. They were holding things back from the poor. He saw the scales imbalanced. He saw worship in the temple becoming irrelevant. And he had an argument with God. And this is what he said in Habakkuk chapter 1. How long, O Lord, must I cry out to you and you do not listen? 
How much evil do you have to see before you lift a finger is a rough translation. And the Lord spoke back to Habakkuk and he said, I see everything that is happening and I'm allowing it to happen. In fact, I'm raising up the enemy. Habakkuk said back to the Lord, but you are pure and your eyes cannot look at evil. How then can you look at the evil in the world and do nothing about it? He goes on in chapter 1 to say, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails and you are just. When will you do something about the world? Is this your world or not? I mean, you guys, have you not been in that place Have you not said something like this? Even if you don't watch or pay attention to what is happening in the world closely, you must be aware that the scales of justice are terribly out of balance. And surely sometime in the last few months, you must have thought to yourself, if this stuff in the scripture is true, then God has an obligation to defend it. He's got to do something. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. It is time for God to bring His A-game into this world. I've prayed that. Have you? So Habakkuk says things very similar of this to the Lord. And there is an awkward silence. And because of his history with God, Habakkuk knows that the argument is not over. In the silence, he knows that God is crafting a rebuttal. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, This is what I will do. I will go up on the wall, and I'll wait for the Lord to answer me. So he goes up on a wall that is outside the temple. It's a national symbol It stands for the nation's security. It surrounds the most holy place. And from the top of the wall, which is sort of like a flag, if you will, to Israel at that time in history, he can see the whole city and he waits for the Lord's rebuttal. In chapter 2 of Habakkuk, the Lord goes into six woes. <laughs> Holy in the Hebrew. And we don't know whether that's a cry or whether that's a curse. But the Lord says six things, one right after another, about the city. All of it bad news. And Habakkuk begins to pray. And at the end of this short three-chapter book, he hears a word from the Lord which, as I said, is his voice at that time in history. Here's the summary of what he hears. Things are changing before your eyes. Pay attention. They will get worse before they get better. You must not deny this. But you must not live in despair. You must face the times squarely and you must go through these times. You cannot go around them and you cannot avoid them. They are the only times you have, not some other times. 
And you must face them with honesty and with courage. You must grieve for as long as it takes. But you must not become bitter or unfaithful. For at the end of these times, the Lord will return. And he does not mean the second coming. He means at the end of these times, the Lord will return to his people. And he will bring favor to people that are faithful to him. You must be one of them. And he will reverse the fortunes. And so the most powerful figures in the world will be the humblest. And the humblest figures will have a power all their own. People, I think this is a word from God for our era. I think we live at the time of the prophets. I really do. I think if you look around overseas, you see the steady advance of evil. You see the deportation of refugees by the millions into countries that are not their own with no apparent time for return. And when you look inside of our own country right now, the one that, you know, maybe you grew up thinking God would use to help the world, that one. You're starting to realize how powerless the superpower really is. And for some of you, you're in denial. You still think this is a Christian nation. Most of you this age, you don't think that anymore. But if you're over 40 years old, you still think this is a Christian nation, and so every time they meet in Congress or in the Supreme Court, you get mad when something changes because you think they're taking away your Christian nation. Look, Chief Justice Warren Burger said in the 1970s, in the 1970s, some of you guys were just a twinkle in your daddy's eye. You weren't even here. That this is no longer a Christian nation. But in spite of that 40-year-old edict now, some people still have not woken up to that and they're waiting for the tide to turn. Others are in despair. They're praying for the second coming. Not so they can see Jesus, but so they can get out. They talk about Christ coming back and taking His church away, and then speak not of heaven or Jesus at all. They'll just think about all the crap that they don't have to put up with anymore. That's a form of despair. And so what Habakkuk says to us is, look around you, the times are changing. They're going to get worse before they get better. But you must not despair, and you cannot deny it. You must face these times squarely. They're the only times you have. You can't avoid them, you can't get around them. You're going to have to go through them, but you can't get bitter and you can't be unfaithful. For if you are faithful, God will collect you when it's over and then change the fortunes. But this is not your day, this is not your time. To use a rough metaphor, 
The tide is no longer in. The tide is going out. You have to get used to that. This is a hard pill for me. Because it's so much better, it seems, when God's people are in control. I need this word from Habakkuk. So I started pondering this a few months ago, personally. wasn't going to do anything with it, you guys. Just started reading the prophets. It wasn't even football season. And so much of what they said was applicable to our day. And I started asking myself, what kind of church will thrive in 10 or 20 years when the tide has gone out? Listen to me. The American church right now does not know how to measure success when the tide is out. We don't have metrics for this. So much of what the American church is still trying to become will be irrelevant or 10 in 20 years from now. So it just feels to me like we're playing the wrong game. For starters, when the tide goes out, a church is not measured by how big it is, but by the kind of people it actually produces. Nobody cares how big a church is except church people. Man, that's our game. Nobody we're trying to reach cares how big we are. In fact, when the tide goes out, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. There's a bullseye on your back. So we are trying to become something that will not be useful in 10 or 20 years when the days of Habakkuk are in full swing. When the tide goes out, a church will be measured not by its ministries, but by its supernatural power. People want miracles, not programs. They will not wait years for a church to make their lives only slightly better. They will need the supernatural to bust in and do things that only God can do. Or they will be irrelevant. And God knows they should be irrelevant. Are you with me or I'm just talking to myself? In the days of Habakkuk, when the tide goes out, the only churches that thrive will be those who are doing something for their community that the community values. Because people in crisis are pragmatic. If it doesn't do something that they feel they need, they get rid of it. And so the church that thrives will be a smaller community that is actively engaged 
in real civil issues in the communities around them. We had a gathering here about two years ago, three years ago, in, in the great room, and we were in the atrium, and the superintendent of schools was there, not a part of any church. And he was there for the event, and I was talking to someone, I was talking to him actually, when someone stepped in, and they interrupted the conversation, and they said to the superintendent, you know, I have a question about this whole thing that you're letting the church come into the schools. This doesn't seem right to me. It seems like, a, like you're broaching this whole thing of the separation of church and state. And you really ought to consider letting a church be so active. We have about 125 mentors from college church alone go into the public schools every week and mentor at-risk kids. So it's been a huge lift to them. They've needed it. It's changed the culture of their school. Superintendent looked at the person and said, look, all I know is that this church has changed the culture of one of my most embattled schools. That's what I know. He said, I know that they were on their way out, being taken over by the state, until a bunch of mentors and teachers from this church came together to work on the culture of that school, and that changed everything. So he said, if you think I'm going to stop letting them come into our school, you're wrong. And then he said, and if in the process, a few of these kids get quote-unquote saved, he just went, I went, maybe that ain't my battle. This is a classic example. Your access to the community is that you provide something that is useful for the community. More church services are not the answer. Better church services are not the answer. It's a different kind of church. Low profile. Investing, listen to me, in other entities. The church that tries to save its life will lose it. But the church that falls to the ground and dies and reproduces itself in other tiny churches will live on. The church that thrives years from now in low tide in Habakkuk's day will be a church that is not known by its mega personality leaders. We are making hundreds of them. We turn church pastors into pop stars, you guys. They're like rock stars in the evangelical ghetto that we all look up to and want to become. But years from now, the most significant people in the church will be a laity that has been trained and released to be the real ministers all over the city. It will not be about the rise of a mega pastor. It will be the rise of a laity. An unknown laity, trained, commissioned, and sent out. It's a different day. At least it's a different day that's coming. 
But it is not a day of despair. It's just a different day. It will require us to set different visions. And so we've worked hard on that here. Tried to get this right. There's a lot that we don't know. But some things are changing. One of the things we're focusing on in our church, you guys, is a strong interior. We have to continue to produce a stream of holy, faithful, quiet, peaceful, consistent, stable, courageous lives. We have to do this. Not because they're going to win the world for Jesus, but because without them, the world has no alternatives. Their way is the only way. So we have to raise up a quiet protest. Not people who talk all the time with their position on this or their position on that as if anyone in the world cares. But people who live the difference. We have to produce a steady stream of these people. Outside of that interior strength, we need an outward focus. Because this is not the time to pull apart and just be our little selves. This is a time to be courageous and bold, but to think differently. Some of the things that we're working on now is a partnership with some of the churches in Grant County. This isn't something College Church can or will do alone. We can't. We have to work with other churches, churches that are way different from us. But as long as we have the same core beliefs and we want to see the same things happen, we're working on bringing churches in our community together so that no one of them stands out, but all of them are stronger. Yes? In January, we'll do a thing called Sheep to Shepherd. We'll commission over 300 of our laity to be shepherds wherever they work. We need business leaders and coaches and bankers and teachers, construction workers. We need them to be shepherds wherever they work. We don't need Christian workers. We need shepherds who happen to teach. Or shepherds who happen to build houses. Yes? So that they actually guide the people who are around them. We're beginning to explore the possibility of taking college students who, thank God, come by the hundreds to college church. And there's this conversation we're having where we're thinking... We're not doing for the greater body what we could do with them. And so we've started to have conversations with other churches or other communities around the country or around the world. And our thinking is, what if we could collect as many collegians as possible and disciple, train, develop as many collegians as possible and then when they graduate, send them commission them to places where we have 
partnerships or friendships around the world. We've had conversations, informal ones, brief ones, but conversations about this, or I have, with people in Buffalo. They want to plant 23 churches in the next 20-some years. We've had conversations with leaders in Mexico City. We had a conversation for the second time for more than an hour with a leader from Sydney, Australia about helping to plant a church over there in the next couple of years. So these conversations are starting to happen. The flywheel's starting to get going. And our vision is to take people that God has given us, put them into cohorts, and then by the time they graduate, they go out as shepherds, laity, who work ordinary jobs in communities all around the country or world. We'll continue to create material that we can stream into the church that has the seed in it. Some things that we've done in the past here, God has used incredibly. He had no idea He would do this. But it's helped a lot of other churches just like it's helped ours. And so we have conversations going and meetings being had about how to capture more and more of what God is doing in our congregation so that we can share it freely, freely, not for $11.99 a copy, but freely with other congregations. Habakkuk was right. Habakkuk was right. Two or three years after he wrote this, that army that kept moving through the Middle East got to Jerusalem and they tore down the wall that he stood on. The temple was destroyed. The king was carried off into exile. The scrolls were locked away and Israel lost its land. Everything, everything Israel had depended on for its identity, the land, the king, and the temple was gone in a few short years. But the prayer that Habakkuk prayed on that wall remains.